Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Scootybarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Scootybarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. One of the things that Shannon does for me is she surprises me with clean sheets. Now, you think that is a joke, but I'm telling you, my love language is clean sheets. There's just something about crawling into bed, and there's, there's just this feeling. You know that's like, these are clean. There's no dead skin cells on there. There's no sweat. There's no dirt. It's just like this pure, perfect sleep that you're in for because clean sheets. Can anybody, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Nothing like clean sheets. The thing about clean sheets is this, though. They're only clean until you get in them. And then they're dirty sheets. So a true clean sheets has to be given every single time you get in bed. Now, that's a whole lot of work. That's a whole lot of washing. That's a whole lot of stretching, right? Because, I mean, you can put sheets on by yourself, but really it's a two-man job, right? But at the end of the day... The, the feeling of clean sheets really is, in my book, worth the effort. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Judges. That's in the Old Testament. Well, I'm going to start in a series that I've been planning for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I've been delayed, um, I think, uh, by God, but um, I've been delayed in this. In fact, it's been kind of a running joke in the office that Matthew will say, so what are you preaching on this week? I bet it's not Judges 13. Because, because I keep saying, Judges 13, uh, well, I changed it. But today, finally, we're going to start in the story of Samson. And we're going to move the next several weeks through this story because I think God has something to teach us through uh, the prophet Samson. But I got to tell you that I got through the first verse, and, and that's where it stopped. So today, it's Judges 13, verse 1. I promise we won't go one verse per week. But here's the thing. This verse, I think, is so important to get. It's so important for us to really grasp what God is saying here because it gives us the whole reason that Samson was Samson. Judges chapter 13, if you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament, right after Joshua and just before the first and second, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, things like that. So Judges chapter 13, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. You know, we live in a world that is increasingly evil. And it is easy for us as God's people to constantly talk about how evil the world is. We can speak of the wickedness that we see. In fact, you don't have to go farther than just a week or two ago and say that, man, we are definitely in the throes of evil based on what we see on TV. I don't know anybody who actually watched the Grammys, but if you watched the Grammys, I'm, I'm sure somebody did, they, they had the pinnacle of wickedness in a guy by the name of Sam Smith who dressed up as Satan and performed his song called Unholy with a 
a, a squadron of people dressed as demons around him, and they celebrated all that was unholy without a doubt, even bringing in satanic symbols. This was primetime national television, and it was celebrated and applauded by all of the media outlets as this is an amazing thing that we have just witnessed. I don't know if you've seen that, and I don't know if you heard about that, that's just one illustration, one example that we truly live in a wicked and evil world. Now listen to me. It's easy for us to think that we're suddenly wicked, but that's not exactly true. The world has been wicked, or there has been wickedness and evil since God created Adam and Eve. It did not take much longer than Cain and Abel for the first murder to happen. And it didn't take more than Adam and Eve for the first lie to happen, and for the first blaming to happen, and for the first hiding from God to happen, and for the first trying to cover up to happen, right? What did Adam and Eve do when God was walking through the garden? They hid, they covered, and they blamed. So it's not like this is new stuff. It's just that we have more access to it and we see it more and more and more. But here's the point. The scripture tells us here in chapter 13, verse 1, not that worlds again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Notice it doesn't say the Philistines did what was evil. It doesn't say the Amalekites. It doesn't say the the Amorites. What does it say? It says the Israelites once again did evil. In the Lord's sight. This is the seventh time in the book of Judges where this phrase, once again, the Israelites did evil. The seventh time. If you go back through, it's they did evil in the Lord's sight and the Lord punished them or the Lord disciplined them. It was this constant, never ending cycle of people rebelling against God and then God punishing them or disciplining them and then God restoring them. And then it was, oh, my question is this. Why did they not stay clean? I mean, what was it about God that was so unappealing? I mean, did they forget that God is the one who delivered them out of the hands of Egypt, which, by the way, only was a result of their own sinfulness? They never would have been in bondage in Egypt had they not sinned against God. Did they forget that God is the one who provided for them while they were in the desert? Which, by the way, the only reason they were in the desert for 40 years was because they disobeyed God. Even after God delivered them from the bondage of the Egyptians. And yet, even in that deliverance, and even in that wandering rather, God fed them day and night, over and over and over, proving His faithfulness to them. I mean, how could they forget all that God had done With Joshua and through Moses. How could they forget what God had done from Gideon? I mean, just a few chapters before Gideon delivers them. Folks, it's easy to blame the Israelites and say, they're just dumb. They just didn't get it. How could they not see the goodness of God? But are you and I not just like this? Listen, folks, do you and I forget the goodness of God so often and we have to wonder, why do I do this? Why do I turn away from God's goodness and turn to my own devices? Again, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. Not everything in your life that is chaos is a result of your sin, but some of it is. Some of the struggle you face is a direct result of disobedience to God. Some of the 
the consequences in your life that you're dealing with are a direct result of sin against God. Now look, it is not good theology to say everything that is chaotic is a result of your sin. Because sometimes God puts us through things and allows us to go through things that it's just refining. And sometimes it's the sin of others, but sometimes it's our own. And so the question is this. Number one, when will we ever learn? And I say we because I'm sitting in the pew with you on this one, right? Not only when will we ever learn, but two, will we cry out for forgiveness and be made right with God and in effect get clean sheets again? You remember what it's like to have clean sheets. You also remember what it's like to be right with God. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to the right a little bit in Psalm 51. David gives us an amazing example of both the effect of sin and also the understanding of what it means to be freed or forgiven from sin. My, my prayer for you and for me is this, that we would find clean sheets today. And that we would pursue clean sheets each and every day. So Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. This is Psalm, now this is the Psalm of David. Now remember, this is right on the heels of David being confronted by the prophet Nathan. Now if you remember the story, I'll kind of sum it up for you. David didn't go out to war like the other kings did. He, instead, he sent his men out in front of him and he stayed back. And as he was on the roof looking around his kingdom one day, he oversaw this woman who was down bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And inside of him, a lust started to rage. And he sent for her, brought her to him, and he lay with her. She became pregnant. And when she told him, hey, you are my baby's daddy... He suddenly got afraid and he said, I know what I'll do. I will send for her husband. So he sent word and brought her husband back. And when he brought her husband back, he would not go in and be with his wife. He slept at the city gate because he was honorable and he was righteous. And so David, realizing that he wasn't going to be able to hide this sin, he then sent this husband back to the front lines with a note he carried his own death sentence to the commander of the, uh, of, the, of the Israelite army that said, put him at the front lines and then when the fighting is the toughest, pull back and let them slay him. So sure enough, that's what happened. And word came back to David, the deed has been done. He is dead. David hid. He tried to cover and he tried to blame, didn't he? It was everybody else's fault but his. Well, this prophet named Nathan came to David and started to tell a story. And David, on his throne, was listening to the story, and he became self-righteous. He started to think, ah, yes, this is a travesty. Whoever did what you're talking about must die. And then Nathan said those infamous words, King, you are that man. And the guilt... And the shame that David must have felt in that moment had to have been truly like the weight of the world on his shoulders. This psalm comes from that. David called him out. He was guilty. Not just guilty of adultery, but he was also guilty of murder. He was, uh, he was guilty of conspiracy. I mean, all of these things that he was now guilty of. And yet Nathan was calling him out 
And David then cries out to God with this psalm. He said, be gracious to me, O God, for two reasons. He didn't say, be gracious to me, O God, because I deserve it. He didn't say, be gracious to me, O God, because the people are watching. He said, be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love and according to your abundant compassion. Even in his sin, David knew the character of God. Listen, the faithful love of God, this is not some feeling of love. This is a committed love. It is a love that means I have a covenantal love with you. That's God covenanting in love with you. And then the second part, abundant compassion. That means that his heart is for his people. The Bible tells us God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And he certainly doesn't delight in the punishment of the righteous. He delights in a right relationship. And so David knows this and he cries out to God and he says, God, because of who you are, I'm asking you to blot out my rebellion." Notice the wording here. David does not pull any punches. He doesn't pretend that it's, you know, indiscretion, minor infraction. No, I have sinned. I have rebelled. I have, I have been, been uh, full of iniquity. He calls it out on himself because I think he knows that he can't hide from God. The truth is, you and I cannot hide from God. And mostly we know when we're not right with God. Amen? It is an awful, horrible thing to not be right with God. Let me just say in the very outset of this message, this is not a message of condemnation. This is the most hopeful message you will ever hear from me. Because it's the story of a people who desperately need God's forgiveness and a God who radically provides such forgiveness. But it's also full of the truth that we must be warned because our sin will always find us out. I wish it weren't that way. I wish there was a way that we could just blot out sin and there's no result from it, but it's not possible. Now, there are, there are times when God doesn't give us the just consequence of our sin. Sometimes mercy is given, but there are often or mostly times when the direct result of our sin is something that we have to bear out in life. That's the chaos that we so often feel in life. And so David is saying, God... Blot out my rebellion and completely, verse 2, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. If, 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 if you could think of it today, he was saying, God, I desperately need and desire clean sheets. Because my sheets are dirty. He says, for I am conscious of my rebellion. Verse 3, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done evil in your sight. So what David is saying is this. When you are not right with God, you know it. And you, you know it constantly. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know when your relationship is not right with Him. Just as if you are married, you know when there's something between you and your spouse. Right? You don't have to anymore than walk through the door and know. You can just feel it. Am I right? You just know something's there. Now, you can go up and you can hug your, your spouse. I can go hug Shannon and I can give her kisses. But if there's something wrong between us, she gives me the dead fish hug. Right? It's that, it's that cold, dead, I acknowledge you're there and I'm glad you're there, but I need to hear some words from you. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The thing is, all of my acts are simply acts and they're dead acts 
Until those words come out, I'm sorry, I've sinned, forgive me. Now sometimes I don't say them in those kind of words, but she gets the point that I'm making. Because it's hard to say those words. I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, right? Now you might be a bigger man than I am, but I don't like to admit when I'm wrong, right? Any man in here identify with that? But the tr- <laughs> now don't point to your husband, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you should be raising your hand, right? But David prays. He said, I am conscious of my rebellion. He's saying to God, my sin just won't leave me alone because against you and you alone I have sinned and done evil in this sight. He recognizes how broken he is before God. He doesn't try to blame anymore. He doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't try to hide because he's already been called out. Listen, God knows what you've done. He knows what you haven't done and he knows what you've thought and he knows your self-righteousness and he knows your wickedness. He knows all of those things even before you come to realization about it. And yet the character of God says, come to me. If you confess your sin, our God is faithful, our God is just. He will not only forgive you of your sin, but he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will give you Brand new sheets. He then says, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We have a sin nature that will constantly cause us to wrestle in disobedience to God. It's part of your nature But that is not an excuse just to sin. And the fact that we have been offered forgiveness doesn't give us a license to sin either. Romans chapter 6 covers that for us. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not, with an exclamation point. How can we who have died to sin continue any longer in it? The idea is this. You've been redeemed. You've been bought back from an empty way of life. And because of that, God has offered to you and given to you, lavished upon you grace and mercy and kindness. And because of that, we should have a relationship with Him that our love, overse- that our love supersedes, our love for Him supersedes our desire to sin. But when that desire comes... We know He gives us a way out, but we also know that we wrestle with the flesh. What I'm trying to say is what the Bible says is, you have a sin nature that you will always deal with. That's why His mercies have to be new every single morning. That's why you can't just, like a Ronco, set it and forget it. That's why you can't just ask for forgiveness when you were saved, and then the rest of your life not. That's why every day when you walk home, you have to consider, have I done something to make my wife mad or have I done something to offend my husband? And you know when you have, but when you know it, you have to deal with it. You know what happens to a husband and a wife who never get right with each other? They wind up spending a lot of lonely time in the same house together and ultimately they wind up separated and divorced. That's what happens. Because a relationship cannot bear long-term unconfessed, broken uh, relationship through sin. It just can't handle it. David understood this and he prayed, Lord, I know that my nature is sinful. But I also know that you desire something more. The very next verse, verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self 
That's integrity of heart. And you teach me wisdom deep within. In other words, God, you've provided a way. May I trust in the way you've provided. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The imagery here is marvelous. The imagery, hyssop is what was used in the Old Testament. It was what was commanded by the Israelites to use to put the blood of the, uh, of the, the spotless lamb on top of the doorpost and on the bottom and from side to side. That was what they knew as the Passover. It was before they were delivered out of Egypt. If you go back and remember that story, what God said was, take a lamb, slaughter it, a perfect lamb, take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. The top Side to side. Do you all see what that looks like right there? And the hyssop branch is what was used to do that. David is calling back to that saying, God, I need you to pass over me. I deserve the death that is coming, but I need you to pass over me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to make me clean. White as snow. The idea is the spotless, perfect lamb is what cleanses us from sin. Then David goes on to say what the result of his sin is. This is the real result of unconfessed sin to God. You're not going to like it. It's going to hurt a little bit. But don't worry, there's hope. The first thing, verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. The idea is let me hear joy and gladness again, but let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. The first thing we can understand when we are, have, have unconfessed sin against God is we experience His discipline. When we, when we offend God, He disciplines us, not because He hates us and not because He wants to see us suffering, but because He disciplines those He loves. If God didn't discipline you, that means He doesn't love you. Now, why does He discipline us? He disciplines us for a couple of reasons. One, because we're hard-headed and sometimes we don't get it unless there's pain involved in doing what we did, right? That's why corporal punishment is a thing. The idea is you need to associate your disobedience with this pain. That way the disobedience is not worth the pain. That's kind of the idea of any discipline, really. But the second thing is, is to teach us what is right. We in our frailty don't understand Sometimes what is right and wrong until we see it right in front of us. It's also a way that God warns others through our own sin. Hey, don't be like that guy. It's a way that he says, hey, this is the result of sin. Now, we just spent two days in prison. Well, we spent yesterday in prison. They let us out. Whew, we're glad for that. So Friday night, we were in this building, and we did an equip and ignite. We spent a couple hours learning how to share the gospel through a gospel track. We worshiped together. We, we, we talked about the do's and don'ts of what we can do and can't do in the prison, and we figured out the timing and the groupings that we were going to be in. And then yesterday, Saturday morning, we all met at the prison at 6.30. And after we went through the rigmarole of trying to go through clearance and you know them searching all of us and the motorcycles and stuff, we went into the prison and then we, we, we waited for them to come out into the yard. And we spent all day talking about Jesus. The thing that struck me, one of the things that struck me about being there yesterday was this. By the way, we had 422 that we know of gospel conversations yesterday in a span of just about six or eight hours. There were 31 that we know of that 
publicly said, I trust Jesus today. And there were over 100 men who said, I want to recommit my life to Jesus today. But the thing that stood out to me was this. Multiple guys that I talked to said these words. Said, prison has been the best thing to ever happen to me. They said, one of them said, I was raised as a Christian or I was raised in church. I became a follower of Jesus. And then I just got stupid and I got into these things and God had to capture me and put me in prison to pull me back to him. He was thankful that God put him there. Another guy I asked and he said, look, I cannot believe that I have been forgiven for what I did. And God in here has shown me of his forgiveness. And just story after story after story about how these guys say, look, I don't want to be in here, but being in here saved my life and it led me back or it led me to Jesus. Discipline from the hand of God is, should be seen as his kindness, not as his judgment. Because discipline is something God does for those he loves. By the way, can I tell you a real cool story real quick? Uh, on Friday night, we, we had a dinner and our waterfront cooking team, uh, I asked them to cook their waterfront meal. So we feed at the waterfront once a month. We take a baked spaghetti and green beans and a banana pudding. Every month we take it over there and serve the folks at waterfront home. But I asked the team, hey, can you make a meal for us? Just do the same thing you do. You know, you, you've, you've nailed it, right? So just do it here. So I said, plan for about 100 people because we thought we'd have about 75 or so and we want a little extra. So they cooked the meal, and after we were done eating, there were three giant pans of baked spaghetti left, two giant pans of green beans, and a whole pan of banana pudding. And as I put in the refrigerator before I left, I had this, this, this feeling. I was like, man, what a waste. Because, you know, I, I count pennies, you know. I'm, I, I feel responsible for this. And I said, Lord, this is a waste of 30 or $50 because you paid for it. You bought that food. We paid for that out of the budget. The budget is paid for because you, you give on Sundays, right? Y'all don't see a whole lot of what you get to do, but, but that's just one of the little things. And I was like, Lord, we're going to waste $50 worth of food. I said, but Lord, maybe there's somebody who needs it. And I, I, I prayed this exact prayer. I said, Father, would you show us who it is that needs this food? And as I was driving home, I texted Jennifer Grant. And I said, hey, Jennifer, if you can think of anybody who needs some food, we've got some extra food. She said, I think maybe the women's uh, 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 home could use it. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to them and see if they need it. So she took the food to the women's home yesterday. And she texted me as I was leaving the prison. She said, Jeff, they were scrounging when I showed up to find food to feed the women because they are overfilled right now. He said they were praying that God would provide food for them to eat that night. And when I brought the food in, half of them started crying and the other half started praising God for answering their prayer. Folks, is it not amazing that even when we think we did it wrong, God is using it for his own glory? We should celebrate that. In one day, we fed the abused, we visited the the prisoner and proclaim freedom to him. And we talked about the gospel to people everywhere. I mean, it was a glorious, glorious weekend. And then today we get to celebrate the goodness of God. Discipline is one of the results 
of unconfessed sin. Turn away your face from me and blot out my guilt. Guilt is a result of sin. Guilt is that weight of knowing that you've done wrong. When I, I've told you this story before, but I love this story, so I'm going to tell you again. When I was in college in Nashville, Tennessee, they came across with this silly rule that they wanted to keep the city clean of pollutants, and so you had to pass a, a test. I say silly, it wasn't. So, so the test was they stuck this sniffer inside of your tailpipe, and you had to, to turn your car on, and it sniffed the hydrocarbons coming out of it, and it had to be under a certain level. Well, I had a Dodge D-150, 1988, and there was nothing clean about that 318, okay? And so when I drove up to get tested, I didn't realize that I was not only going to fail, I was going to fail miserably. So the deal was you had to get a passing test and you could get a sticker that went on your back window. If you didn't have the sticker, it was a fine. Well, I didn't have the sticker because I didn't pass the test, but I also knew I had to drive. And so everywhere I drove, I drove looking in the mirror. I mean, if I saw a cop pull in, I'd pull off the side of the road and pretend I was doing something. I mean, it was a year of hiding from the cops driving because I knew I was breaking the law, but I didn't know how to fix it. Right? Don't judge me. You'd have done the same thing, too. I tried all kinds. I talked to people, and finally they told me how I could fix the problem enough to pass the test, and I did. You had to put an ethanol, alcohol, and stuff in you. Anyway, I passed the test. I got my sticker, and I'm not kidding with you at all. I drove around town looking for cops. I was like, I'm going to find a cop and pull out in front of him and just, just drive. Do you see my sticker? Yeah. I mean, I was like, I'm going to be, I'm right. I'm right with the law, so therefore, I want to make sure you know. The weight of guilt will crush you. There might be somebody in here today who the weight of the guilt of your sin is crushing you. And you might be at the point where you're now embarrassed and you might even be tempted to believe, I can't go to God now because He knows that I know and I know that He knows. I'm just going just gonna... to... But you know what God says? He says, I already know. The guilt you're feeling is a gift. It's to call you back to me. God, this is the prayer, create in me a clean heart. And renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. In other words, remove this guilt from me because I don't want a strained relationship anymore. That's the next verse. Do not banish me from your presence. When you have unconfessed sin against God, there is a strained relationship. You know it and God knows it. Just like when you walk in the house and you know that you did something wrong. Sometimes you don't even know what you did when you walk in the house. But you know you did something, right? The strained relationship also is evidenced by a loss of power. The next part of the verse, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The Bible tells us that God will give us His Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, right? If you have a lack of power, your starting place is unconfessed sin. You know, before I preach, I try to come before God and say, God, forgive me for anything or bring to mind anything that I'm not right with you on. Because I don't want to stand on a platform and teach your word without power. Because anything I say is only good when the power of God is behind it. Now, thankfully, God can even work through a donkey, right? You know that story, right? Thankfully, God can use even a sinner to proclaim a story, but it's so much better when God uses someone who's clean. 
And so you have a strained relationship. You have a loss of power. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me. No joy. You know what it's like to live with no joy? You, you can smile, but you know it's fake because on the inside it's not really there. You can laugh because everybody else is laughing, but you know that it's not really funny. You can touch, but you don't really feel because you know that there's just this dullness and numbness inside of you. If you want that joy back, start with any unconfessed sin. And sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. It's hard to be obedient when you have unconfessed sin. It's hard to go in the name of Jesus when you know that you've got things that you haven't dealt with. Now listen, if you're married, you know that you can still get along. You can still have conversation. You can, you can still laugh, but, you, but, but it's not the right kind of relationship, right? So you can still be obedient if you have unconfessed sin, but you're not going to be the kind of obedient that God desires and the kind of obedient that truly brings satisfaction and joy and fullness to your life. And then he says this. He says, then I will teach the rebellious of your ways and sinners will return to you. Unconfessed sin results in a lack of witness or a loss of witness. People see things. I hope you know that if you have professed Christ verbally, then people now have marked you as different. And everything you say and everything you do is under a microscope. And the hard part about that is this. People are looking at you that you don't even know are looking at you. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? But I got good news. You are not going to send anybody to hell by your bad behavior. You're not that powerful, okay? Now, you can cause them to have a major detour. But if God is chasing after somebody, God's going to send somebody to preach the gospel to them so that they can hear and believe. But you could also be a stumbling block to somebody. It's even more dangerous when you stand on a platform in the name of Jesus. There was a guy by the name of Arthur Blessed. Y'all ever heard of him? If you're really young, you probably haven't heard of him. But go back and research. He has led hundreds and thousands of people, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people, if you look at the legacy of his faith. This was back in the 80s and 90s. He heard from God that he was to take and build a giant wooden cross, almost bigger, well, bigger than that, probably a third bigger than this. He was to put two wheels on it, put it on his shoulder, and walk from the east to the west and from the north to the south on every road in this country. And as he walked, he would share the gospel with people. That was his ministry for 20-something years. And he has led people to Christ who now are proclaiming the gospel from stages and platforms all over the world. God used him in a mighty, mighty way, and yet his legacy has been tarnished because of sin. The fact is, people are watching. And the higher the platform the harder the fall and the bigger the stumbling block. That should scare you. That's why the scripture tells us not many of you should presume to be teachers, right? Not many of you should want to be teachers because the more you have influence, the harder you fall and the more you, you block. And so I say that about Arthur Blessed only to say I could, I could use his name. I could tell you name after name after name who fell because sin became more than they could bear. Let me finish this. 
Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. In other words, he was saying, God, I've sinned. This is what I did. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. When you have unconfessed sin, you have lost worship. Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. And when you confess to God and you are made right with him, your worship becomes sweet again. The songs from your lips have meaning now. The songs from your lips are an expression of the thankfulness that you have in your heart. He says, you don't want sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. When you walked in these doors today, everything you offered to God was wasted if it wasn't given to him from a clean heart and a broken spirit. He doesn't want your hands lifted up until your heart is bended low. That's for you. That's for me. But the sacrifice of God that God desires is a broken spirit. And he will not despise, verse 17, a broken and humbled heart. You know, in, um, in Asbury, in, in Wilmore, Kentucky, Wilmer, Wilmington, little teeny tiny one horse, one light town in Kentucky, right now, they're going on day number 10 or so of a, of a revival where they've been praying and singing in their chapel since two Wednesdays ago. People from all over the country, all over the world, are showing up in this little dinky Kentucky town. And if you look at video, you'll see people lined up for what has to be a mile plus outside of the chapel. People waiting to get in to experience the presence of God. And then we're hearing reports that at Lee University, where Hannah just graduated... They're having the same kind of thing. People aren't flocking there as much, but they've got this move of God inside the chapel. And the same thing at Sanford University, and there's other college, Cedarville University. Their college campuses are, seem to be having this, this move of God, and people are just coming before God and confessing sin and, and worshiping Him. But here is the thing. God is not at those college campuses only. He's right here. You don't need to drive to Kentucky to have a fresh relationship with Jesus. I would argue don't drive to Kentucky. Don't go feel the show and feel the experience. Because you're searching a feeling if that's the case. Stay right here. Be right with God. And let God revive you in a way that may not even come out in emotion. It might, but it doesn't have to. I don't have to feel in love to be in love with my wife. I would even argue that a mature love is one that you just know at your core. Yes, there might be some tears and tears are okay. I have tears when I think about some things that are deep, deeply moving to me. But there are other times that I don't, I don't have that feeling of emotion. But I know that I know that I know who God is. And I know that I know that I know that He's real and He's present. So we don't need to seek the felt presence of God. We need to seek to be right with God. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it's wrong to go, and I'm not saying it's wrong to cry. I'm just saying we don't need to get something from a place. We need to find the presence of God in our life, and it starts with forgiveness from God because of repentance from us. I would even argue 
that revival is not a moment. Revival is a process because some of us have got unconfessed sin that stacks up for weeks and months and years. And true repentance is, Lord, I confess this, I name it, but I also acknowledge there's other things that I need you to show me. And as you show me, I'm going to confess them and name them, and I'm going to do what I have to do to reconcile in those things. Confession of sin without repentance of sin, which means turning away from sin, is not really confession. It's just saying some words to try to get temporary reprieve from guilt. That's not what God wants for you. What God wants is brand new sheets. So I want to invite you, starting now, to examine your heart like David did. Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And God, as you show me, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do everything that I can do to align my life with yours. But I'm also knowing that I can't do more than I can do. So there's a supernatural part of it that only you can do. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So this morning I would invite you to examine your own heart and acknowledge any sin and also acknowledge any rebellion. I think sin could sometimes be just, just willful disobedience and sometimes sin is just, just pure wickedness. I mean, I don't think we can label sin, but I think that it comes in different forms. You know, sometimes doing what I know not to do, and then sometimes I just don't do what I know to do. Both of them are sin. But God, make me right with you. Pray this prayer. Lord, whatever it takes, take away what you got to take away. Put in what you got to put in. God, I'm asking you to discipline me because of your unfailing love. Because I don't want to be anything but right with you. Will you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment? Just in the silence for a few moments, would you just enter into this, this prayer to God? If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, that's where you start. God, I know that I need a relationship with you. So I invite Jesus into my life. If you're here and you are a believer, you have trusted Christ. Just, just, like, you would, just like you would search for lice in a head of hair. Go follicle by follicle, examining every single part. And asking God to reveal to you, what is it, God, that's between me and you? Because I want there to be nothing. After just a few moments of silence, I'm going to invite the worship team to begin, begin singing and playing. We're just going to respond to God. But guys, revival is not something that you have to see. But it's something that happens individually. It's being made right with God.
God, let the weight of our own sin rest upon us so that we could know from what you have delivered us. God, those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. God, may we not have any self-righteousness. May we not have any ego. May you debase all of our pride. God, would you just, just breathe on us a freshness. Your presence.